Welcome to episode 17 of CarmelCast, a production of the Institute of Carmelite Studies Publications. You can visit our website at icspublications.org, where right now we have a Lenten promotion going on, uh, all of the writings of St. Therese, uh, and commentaries about her life, contemporary commentaries on sale uh, for you. Check out our website to see more details, icspublications.org. Uh, my name is Brother Pier Giorgio of Christ the King. I work at ICS Publications uh, as an editor. Um, I'm joined today on either side of me by Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified and Father Michael Joseph of St. Therese. Great. So uh, one thing that uh, we I did last time that I liked, um, even though it was awkward and difficult for you, <laughs> on the spot. that's why you liked it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. um, I'm gonna ask you my pop question, right? Uh, okay. So today, this week's pop question is: uh, What misconception about Saint Therese aggravates you or annoys you the most? <laughs> It's a great question. <laughs> you have to go first. I gotta go first. I can uh, think. You, you think more on the spot than I do. I, well, I think uh, there's several, but uh, my my I guess the maybe the most is one that I would hear in seminary um, sometimes. And there was a seminarian who liked Therese a lot. He loved her. I mean, attributed a lot to her. But he said, "Oh, but when she was a kid, she was a spoiled brat." And and you hear that sometimes. She was a spoiled brat, and it's when you read her life, it's like, no, she wasn't like <laughs> she struggled with oversensitivity, you know, and she did have certain, certain emotional kind of tendencies to, to cry or things like that. But, um, and her sister surrounded her with love. Her dad, you know, was surrounded her with love, but they were so, um, careful to keep her, you know, from being all about herself and, and, uh, definitely made sure to, um, make sure she has permission for things to not just let her get her way. You know, her dad on a couple instances, you know, it was very clear when, when she was just like expected his affection in a sense or took it for granted that he upbraided her for that, you know. And so she was very well formed in that sense, even though um, she was a lot was centered on her. She I would say she is not a spoiled brat. And I think that's that's an annoying thing to me when I hear that. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah. good. I think for me, this is maybe a little cliche, but I, I um, the misconception that I don't like is that Therese is just very flowery and, <laughs> and sort of uh, yeah that her spirituality is just this very easy sort of childish kind of way yeah. um, and that's just to totally misunderstand Therese and her message um, especially I find if you read her last conversations which is the accounts of the things that she said during her illness towards the end of her life which I think we'll talk about in a later episode uh, you see how her spirituality is is so it's it's difficult um it's a it's a really it's a, a mature spirituality to be able to um to practice the little way it's not just some sort of childish little you know just happy sunshine and flowers all the time it's really it's it's difficult and this weird talk we talked about this earlier is that uh it's it resonates so much with carmelites is that it, it is a way just like johnny cross that's a way of, of complete renunciation mortification um, but it's a mortification that's interior, an interior mortification of our wills. Mm -hmm. And that is not easy at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'll go off on uh, like a, uh, a spinoff on that, I guess. <laughs> and my least favorite misconception or the one that annoys me the most is that she's, uh, St. Therese is a girly saint, mm -hmm. right? Um, so you get that sense like that she's 
like the Lisa Frank of, of do you remember Lisa Frank that they made like binders and yeah. like stickers and stuff yeah. for kids like girls so yeah, there's like this misconception she's like the Lisa Frank of, <laughs> of, uh, of the of, of the Carmelite saints and I completely reject that from experience because um, I have never there's never been a time where I've recommended Story of a Soul to um, to men uh, to young men older men where they haven't come away with a profound sort of uh, and deep uh, appreciation mm-hmm. for her spirituality and uh, and for her message. So uh, that's my my uh, rejection of, of the Lisa Frank stereotype <laughs> of St. Therese. We got to copyright that phrase. Yeah, I don't know if we can. Are we allowed to say like <laughs> trademarked, trade, <laughs> trademarked uh, things on here? But anyway, um, so uh, this week, Brother John Mary, you're, you're going to lead us uh, through our discussion uh, on... Uh, yeah, to, to, from the point of, of Therese's, con, the, the Christmas grace, the Christmas conversion uh, through her entrance into Carmel and maybe the, the first few, the first days of, of her life as a Carmelite nun. Yeah, no, yeah, I think this this is kind of a, it covers mainly chapters five and six, I think, of Story of the Soul. Um, but uh, since we're going to be talking about her discernment, really, I mean, it goes way back to kind of the very beginnings of her life even to, to talk about um, that call that she felt. So I guess I just start with a question to you guys, like where do you kind of see the beginnings of her call to Carmel? Mm-hmm. Maybe not even in a really explicit way, but uh, what was it that was drawing her there? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, even looking back to when she was a very young child, you know, even I think it was one of her first memories was, this desire to be a nun, you know, and, and she must have heard it, right? When you're the youngest, you have all your older siblings talking about stuff and you, you get stuff. But she just had this deep sense that she wanted to be a nun. And um, and then even and we talked about this episode before when Pauline was entering, Therese kind of thought they had this agreement that they would both go together, you know, and, and even though she was so young, um, she had such a mature sense of a call, you know, and so really I just you see it like from a very early age, this mysterious kind of draw that she had mm-hmm. towards the consecrated life. Yeah. yeah, I would point to maybe her first sort of realization that um, that she had some growing to do when, when she received first communion and she was on retreat yeah. uh, and she said, I'm I'm still in swaddling clothes or something, something to that yeah. effect. I can't remember the exact quote, but. Uh, the recognition that she, you know, in the face of of experiencing other children uh, who seemed, you know, be able to take care of themselves, comb their hair, uh, brush their hair, and things like that, and she she had that done for her, you know, her entire life, and she recognized that this was a huge area of growth for her, um, and it, I think for the first time, it put in her in a, you know a conscious way for her that. Um, that if she were to become a nun, like being a religious means a lot of things, among them um, a renunciation of your of will and willfulness in a general way and, and in specific ways as well, um, but also a, a constant commitment to personal growth and and uh, growth in your relationship uh, with God in the spiritual life. So I think that really was really was the first recognition for her that she had imperfections that she had to overcome in order to to uh, to become a nun and uh and, you know and she attributes that that miracle on christmas with sort of the grace that she was able to receive to to overcome that imperfection of, of uh, sensitivity hypersensitivity 
Yeah, we read that, uh, the account of her Christmas miracle on the last episode. Um, and and we, we spoke, we just mentioned how really that had a great effect on her discernment and kind of sealed her, her discernment, her vocation to Carmel. Um, I just find it so interesting that uh, she, you know, she calls this the greatest grace of her life, and we refer to it as the Christmas miracle. And when you read it, it's, I mean, just it's interesting to think like, well, just what's miraculous about this, right? Because she experienced, you know, a statue of of the Blessed Virgin <laughs> smiling at her, um, and later in life she may have experienced some mystical graces, and yet it was this moment, like, where she just all you see from an, an outside point of view is like a a girl who decides not to cry. Yeah. And yet that is the greatest miracle <laughs> yeah. of her life yeah. and really is what like brought her into adulthood really uh, in her discernment. Well, and it's, it's interesting. Um, Blessed Marie Eugene, you know, who was a great lover of St. Therese, you know, great Carmelite, just beatified. Um, he, he actually says this was the beginning of the little way, you know, when, when certain authors talk about it at certain points in her life in Carmel, but he says it goes to this, and he called it the night of light. I think she calls it that, the night of light. Um, so you can see this connection, too, with that God's grace manifesting itself through such ordinary way, you know, and and that so so bound up with her call to Carmel, you know, with her, with her own spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the part at the end where he said, the work I'd been, been unable to do in 10 years was done by Jesus in one instant, contenting himself with my goodwill, which was never lacking. So getting to the essence of the little way that that the goal is not some success that you measure out for yourself. The goal is the effort. The goal is striving with the pure trust that Jesus is the one who will, who will do it, you know? And, and I think so. It's just cool how everything about her kind of future path, you can see sort of boiled in this one, boiled down into this one moment in a sense. Yeah. So uh, Therese would have, um, let's see, she experienced this this Christmas miracle when she was 14 years old. Um, and she enters Carmel a year and a half later. So things really begin to kind of take off after this in her discernment. Um, and she pretty shortly after receiving this, this grace of on Christmas decides that she wants to become a Carmelite. Um, and so this is when she begins working towards that. Granted, we, like we said, she's only 14 years old. So, at the time, you had to be 16 in order to enter the, the convent. And so she still had a long path ahead of her of uh, getting the permissions that she needed. But um, do you guys remember at all about how particularly her family kind of responded to her desire to enter Carmel at such a young age? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there was a lot of it was met with, I mean, some skepticism on the part of her of her sisters, just in the sense that, you know, this would. Uh, this would take a lot of, of energy and, per, you know, lots of permissions and things like that, you know, uh, to, to go against what was the standard um, at that time. And, and even so, the, the idea of entering at 16, while it was permissible, it wasn't necessarily the norm, right? Yeah. So um, I think in that sense, Therese had to be challenged in uh, her vocation had to be challenged and, and, and tempered, right, in order to determine uh, if it was genuine. Um, on the other hand, though, I, I think her sisters knew her very well, uh, and, and certainly Pauline uh, knew that Trez had a vocation. Uh, her father, I think, had that intuition as well, um, that this was this was Trez's path. Um, 
So it was sort of a supportive uh, aspect in her immediate family. There was resistance uh, with her uncle, her her uh, um, her mother's brother uh, Isidore, and um, he he thought that it, the whole thing was ridiculous. This idea of of someone entering uh, so young. Yeah, I think he said you can enter when you're 21, <laughs> it's like, that's which consoling. is like an, an eternity <laughs> yeah, for, when you're for a 14 year old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, Isidore held up some resistance, um, but eventually came around. You know, once he he was able to ascertain and discern that the vocation was genuine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, Therese had overcome a lot of road, roadblocks outside of her family as well in terms of the ecclesiastical support and and permissions. So. Um, there's no, there's nothing, you know, it, the, the test of vocation is, is, is very important because it purifies you as well of misconceptions about, um, about, about what uh, religious life is all about. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, want to make sure that you're entering for the right reasons. Yeah. yeah. So after Therese gets then the permission, kind of the support of her family, she's now got the permission of her sisters and her father and even her uncle who originally was opposed and, yeah. Uh, she just kind of handed it over to the Lord and just said, Jesus, you have to perform a miracle so that my uncle will, will support me. Yeah. And sure enough, he came around. I think it was, about, I think it was like two weeks. It's <laughs> funny because if you read it, uh, Therese writes in, I think, Story of a Soul about how a long time passed or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was like, there's a footnote. It's like, it was two weeks later, <laughs> but it's like an eternity. Yeah, to her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's got then the permission. So like, what's the next step then for her? Yeah. Well, you know, and this is similar with anyone's discernment sense, like you have the personal aspect first and the family, of course, is part of that because they know you so well. But then the church has to say yes, too. And that's a huge part. You have to have the kind of subjective, you know, confirmation and objective confirmations through the church, the official, at least the official kind of representatives of the church. And um, so then it's kind of going up the ecclesiastical ladder to get these, you know, required permissions. Um and, and a little background too, just to say, there was, it was a very anti-Catholic time in that moment in, in France, you know, and there was a lot of tension between um, the civil government and, and the church and a lot was going on. So there was a real fear, even the uncle, one, one of his reasons that he was resisting was because he thought it would bring scandal, you know, like in a sense that it would publicize who's this little child that they're entering the strictest convent in the church and, um, and what that might do, you know, especially if she didn't persevere and all these, that it could become like a, a thing, you know, in the press. So that was in the mind, I think, too, of the superiors, you know, in the church, like the ecclesiastical superiors. They didn't want anything that would kind of strike people as really strange or backwards mm-hmm. in terms of the way the church was proceeding, you know. So, but, but as you said, God kind of used that to purify her intentions. So um, the, next, the next one would be... Uh, the, the kind of ecclesiastical superior of the Carmel, you know, who was in charge. And, and he basically just had no time for this request, you know. And maybe he had seen a lot. Who knows? Maybe he'd seen other younger people or something. I don't know. But and, and didn't work out. But he just didn't have any confidence that this was legit. So I think we can get the impression uh, in this process, especially with the ecclesiastical uh, leaders, that they were kind of just these mean old men who are opposing Therese, <laughs> who, you know, to enter inter- Carmel, which is God's will. But uh, yeah, the truth is, I mean, what would we say now about a 14-year-old wanting to, to, mm-hmm. to commit her entire life in a convent? We'd say, yeah. no, wait, yeah. like wait till mm-hmm. you've matured. So I think yeah. it's, it's totally reasonable that they resisted this. And, um, and yet we can see that it was God's will because 
uh, as we continue on this process, eventually it came to be yeah. um, in rather kind of almost miraculous sort of way. Mm-hmm. And, and not to overlook also aspects that this sort of delay allowed Therese to, uh, to really, you know, from that, the grace of that conversion to really practice that on a daily basis um, in terms of, of, you know, mortifications in, in maybe not the formal sense, but, um, you know, resign, resignment, resignation to the will of God and to, you know, his time and, and, and how this work would be accomplished. And she also took advantage of the time in the sense that this was really a, a, a time of, of deep study for her. I mean, she spent uh, hours at a time studying science and history um, mm. and, and also used the time to practice uh, what she considered to be sort of the first blossoms of, of her charism of prayer and, and praying for uh, the convicted the convicted man um, for his conversion. What was his name? Pranzini. Pranzini yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this sort of being a personal project for her that, that he would that he would uh, seek reconciliation before his execution. Um, so these different aspects of part of her life, you know, she she during this time she really uh, blossomed and and was able to to foreshadow a lot of what her life in, in Carmel would be like, even even outside of the, the convent walls. So Therese experiences the kind of the, the refusal, pretty strong refusal of the superior of the Carmel. And so her next step then is, well, if, if I go to the bishop and he gives me permission, then the superior will have to let me. <laughs> yep. uh, and you can see how her family was very supportive on, on board because her father goes off with her. They go to visit the bishop. Um, what was that experience like for her? Yeah. Well, it just, it's one of those times in reading stories where you kind of laugh out loud because um, she said, you know, here she is in this, you know, colorful dress, you know, trying to put her hair up so she looks older and doing all she can to like have some gravitas, you know, and, it's, <laughs> and, it's, and then it's like, it's raining, right? So it's raining super hard. So she's getting wet as they're, you know, approaching the ca- cathedral. And then when they get in there to wait, you know, there's a, a funeral going on, you know, and, and so everyone's in black. It's just a very morning. And here's this young girl, this like bright dress trying to like work her way through to get to, you know, where she needs to meet with the bishop. And so just the embarrassment, you know, she didn't like to be kind of noticed in a sense. And so it already like, you know, began this uh, embarrassing moment, you know, to kind of prepare her um, for, you know, again, it's like these little crosses, seemingly little crosses, but that are a big part of you know, the vocational journey. And then she enters the room where she's meeting with the bishop and there's three, these three huge armchairs and she has to sit in, in one of the armchairs. And again, she like put up her hair. So she's trying to look very old. And she said, she sits in the chair and like four of her could fit in the chair. Just, just, you can just see it. Like, you know, there's the bishop kind of looking very, you know, big and, and powerful. And here she is just feeling like a little girl yeah. when she's trying so hard to pro- project this sense of, of maturity and adult. Yes. And despite all of her best measures to, to sort of uh, not trick the bishop, but to, to sort of, you know, present her best self in terms of being able and mature enough to Tenter Carmel, the bishop ultimately says, well, I'll have to check with Father Delatroet, who was the, the one who was completely against it, ecclesiastical <laughs> superior. So it's like the whole thing is the whole plan is foiled um, and she has to kind of start from square one. Yeah, so, so, so the, bishop, the bishop doesn't give his permission and, and tries, again, she's trying to act all mature and what she starts crying. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. is what, this is what she can now always control those emotions. Yeah. And, you think this is the worst thing to do if you're trying to convince him of, that you're an adult. Yeah. But it turns out he has great compassion on her. He ends up 
I think kind of embracing her yeah, and yeah. like trying to console her. And he says, well, you know, basically that, that he'll see what he can do yeah. and that he'll let her know. Um, because the next thing is they were, their family was plan- planning on joining this pilgrimage to go to Rome. And so the bishop tells her that uh, after the, the pilgrimage, he would give kind of his answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they basically go from there. They, they go on this pilgrimage to Rome. And uh, what, what was that experience like for Therese? Well, before she got to Rome, they, they spent some time in, in Paris. And that was, uh, for Therese, that was an important um, period or time, you know, only a few days. Uh, but she speaks about the Church of Our Lady of Victory in Paris. And, and I guess during the time where she was having her great illness, when she was, uh, when she was younger, um, there was a novena of masses offered uh, for her at this church. So she wanted to she wanted to to pay a, a, a pious visit to the church where, uh, you know, where she attributed her, her healing from at the hands of Our Lady, um, and and this was a, another sort of instance where you see uh, her spiritual maturity um, during this time of of you know trial and 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 uh, tempering of of her desires yeah. in terms of making sure they're genuine. Um, and eventually they, they make their way to, to Rome. Uh, and this is during a period where there's a lot of anti-Catholicism going on in, in both France and Italy. Um, so you can only imagine some of the experiences that she would have had uh, in the midst of, of protests and, uh, and things like that. And, and she mentions a few of those instances, but it would have been, you know, she speaks of this time as she's very, you know, she sees herself as very impressionable. Um, and she she understands that she has to keep her guard up in order to not be tempted yeah. uh, into into sin amidst you know people screaming at you in the midst of uh, a city life. You can only imagine what yeah. that would have been like. Um, so there is this this sense where she's she's really practicing uh, this this the reception of the grace that she received and, yeah. and really using it in a sense and allowing God this resignation to allow God to to be the master of her life. Exactly. And I think you can see how that kind of tied into to her really sense of Marian consecration in that moment, you know, because when she went to France and she went to Our Lady of Victories, it was a realization for her because as we talked about the healing that she received right after that, the kind of the sisters and Carmel sort of uh, tricked her in a way to telling or that's, you know, maybe too extreme way to saying of what happened. She didn't want to say what happened. And once she told it, she just was agonized over, did it really happen? Or was I, you know, did I say this? I shouldn't have said it. And, and for years she struggled. She was haunted by this beautiful grace she received and then what she had maybe done to mess it up. And, and when she went to Our Lady of Victories, whatever that connection with Our Lady in that moment was just made her know for certain that Our Lady healed her. It was all good, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so it was a real moment for that. And then a total then, it's like, Therese just receives this peace and then in gratitude entrusts everything to Mary. So it's a real sense, too, of her vocational journey is being entrusted to Mary in this moment. And then also, her, of course, her pilgrimage to Rome, that Mary will protect her, keep her pure, you know. And, uh, and because things happen, like, yeah, not only the, the kind of the, the rabble, you know, this, this pilgrimage was famous, actually. It was, all, it, was, it was in the press, you know. And so these Italians heard about this. French group coming to, you know, wish the Pope a happy 50th anniversary, basically, of his priesthood. Um, and so these French people would, like, line up when the train, because they knew where it was, the pilgrimage was going. So 
And at one point, all these, you know, kind of young men who were interested in seeing some young French girls uh, were waiting at the train station. And here comes Therese and Celine. And uh, uh, <laughs> one of these Italian guys comes and just hugs Therese and snatches her up, you know, I mean, and, 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 uh, you know, and Therese just gave him this look. Therese just gave me yeah, this look, right? <laughs> and he backed off. <laughs> so, so she had, yeah, the, our lady, <laughs> that consecration was really bearing fruit, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so we see then, I, I don't think we get this impression as much from reading story of a soul as when you kind of dig into the letters of Therese, but, um, even before, before this pilgrimage, she has a plan in mind for her discernment. And it's not just something that she has planned, but it's like her whole family is involved in like what's going to happen in Rome. Uh, and what is, what, is, what, is, what is she planning? <laughs> well, she knows that there's going to be a, a, an opportunity during the papal audience that the pilgrimage will have. You know, this, they're there to wish him a happy ordination anniversary. Um, so she devises this plan uh, with her accomplice, Celine, uh, to, uh, who's with her on the pilgrimage, to, um, to ask the Pope, the Holy Father, uh, Pope Leo XIII, uh, for permission to, to, enter, uh, to enter the Carmel. Uh, because she knows that if the Pope says yes, well, then nothing else can stand in her way. He's the, he's, the buck stops with him. <laughs> right, so she didn't get permission from the superior, didn't get permission from the bishop. So the next step is the Pope. And it wasn't like this was just some, you know, quick decision that she made even before this pilgrimage. Her whole family's involved. You see in the letters, <laughs> her sisters who were in the Carmel are writing to her, telling her, because mm. I guess before she had left, she had this idea. It was Therese's initial idea to, to speak to the Pope. And they told her, no, I mean, not to do it because, I mean, it wouldn't be very prudent. But eventually they kind of came around and changed their minds. So then they're writing to Therese while she's on this pilgrimage and saying, you should speak freely with the Holy Father yeah. and here's what you should say. And so the, the, even the her father's involved and uh, one of her cousins, the, they're all involved yeah. in this, this plan. Uh, and then the day comes. Day comes. And, uh, you know, she's super nervous, of course. And, um, you know, uh, for I just think too, a, a girl who struggles with timidity, you know, is and uh, very shy, you know, and, and doesn't want to be noticed, right? And then she has, you know, because everyone has their chance to greet the Pope, you know, in this in this pilgrimage group, and um, and no one's supposed to say anything, so she has to like go out of her way to say and do what no one else is even doing, um, and and explain her cause, you know, in this like five seconds that she has. Um, and so I can't, yeah, I just can't imagine. And so her heart's just pounding, pounding. And this is where I love Celine because Therese is having second thoughts and she's right about to meet the Pope and she turns to Celine and Celine just says, speak, you know, just <laughs> do it, you know. And, and it gave her the, the animo to then, to then uh, present, you know, her case before the Holy Father. And also when she's going up there, uh, she sees that, the vicar general is standing right next to the Holy Father, and he already knows the whole situation with her wanting to enter Carmel. So she said when she saw him there, her heart just sank because <laughs> she knew that everything that she said, he was going to be right there to hear the entire thing. Yeah, and it's funny too because, you know, right up into this, like right before this this whole uh, vignette sort of begins, they'd actually told all the pilgrims that there wouldn't be time for 
for talking <laughs> yeah. because they were running behind schedule. <laughs> so they, they strictly said, you know, just, you know, kiss his hand, kiss his ring and, and move on. <laughs> so to see the Vicar General sitting standing right there and knowing that Therese was going to have to disobey his, his, uh, his uh, instruction, we'll say instruction <laughs> yeah. um, about oh, what what you could do in front of the in front of the Pope. It must have been her heart must have been pounding the whole yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she she approaches the Pope. She kisses his slipper, um, and then she looks up at him. And she basically makes her case in a short sentence. She yeah. she says that um, she would like his permission to enter Carmel at age fifteen. Uh, and what was his response? It's like, like you would imagine, like, here's this Pope, you know, meeting all these new people and just going on. And then here's this little girl. And he's just like, what? Like, <laughs> he, does, he, he just couldn't, like, comprehend in that moment what she was asking him. And, and then the vicar general was like, holy father, here's a young girl who's 15 and wants to enter karma. And he's like, oh, you know, we'll do what the superiors tell you, you know, <laughs> like, oh, it's the last thing she wants to hear. Right. And then Therese, <laughs> rather than just taking that right and just accepting yeah. It says that she, I think she says that she even she put her hands on his knees, yeah. and yeah. and she just begs him. She says, "But if you give permission, then no one can say no." Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's when he says, "You know, just do with the if." Or that's when he says, "If it's God's will, you will then enter. you will enter." Yes. 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 Um, so, what is Teresa's initial reaction then? So after okay, so she all this happens. She's basically the guards come and, and kind of tell her it's time to go. They kind of help her get up and like walk her away. Um, and so what is, what's Teresa's initial reaction to this whole experience? Well, I just say, you know, it, it was, it was um, complete dejection. You know, I mean, she just felt like it was as a total, total failure, total, uh, what do they say, dumpster fire, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, it, nothing went according to plan. And, and it was, it's funny, even, even in the letters, like years later, she's already in Carmel, you know, and, and when Celine talks about it, it's almost like still there's almost a trauma there, you know, because the disappointment was so strong. Um, but she was able to kind of, you know, recompose herself and, uh, just a little vignette, you know, later on, you know, that one of the guards who, who took her away, um, maybe 50 years later, his daughter was around in, in a convent, some convent when Therese was canonized. And when she learned the story, she realized her father came home that day and said, it was a great day. You wouldn't believe it, though. There was this young girl who wanted to enter Carmel at a young age and, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it just, you know, it struck this guy so much. And then this daughter remembered that her whole life, you know, all, late, all these years later. Um so I think it had a bigger impact on others than she had thought. And even the vicar general, it, it did something to move his heart, even though he was annoyed, mm. clearly, that she did this. But it planted something in his heart. And you wonder even with the Pope, you know, you wonder if it made more of an impact. than so she didn't know all this, but her, her sincerity and her, her genuineness was making an impact on people, you know, in that moment. And already starting the motions and for it all to end up working out. And she wanted to recompose herself in a sense as well, because I think she, to some extent she did realize that, um, you know, she still had work to do. Right. So the remainder of the pilgrimage, she was she was sort of trying to get into the graces of the of the superiors who were present, the, the, the bishop and the vicar general um, to really demonstrate, OK, you know, I'm I am mature. I can handle disappointment um, and, and I can show them right yeah. that 
that uh, this really is what, you know, if it is God's will, I'll show them that it's God's will yeah. because uh, because I'll show them how mature I am and how I'm able to handle this bad news. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so at first she's like totally, like you said, just reject, I mean, dejected about this whole experience. Um, but then we, we see a little change happen. Actually, just a few days later, she gets some letters from her sisters in Carmel, from um, Pauline and from Marie. And it seems like they really helped her to kind of change her mindset because they point out, well, you should rejoice in this because look what the Pope told you. He said, if it's God's will, you will enter. Mm-hmm. And it's very clearly God's will. So yeah. you should you should take this as not as a rejection, but this is a great grace, actually, yeah. um, in prophetic words from the Pope. And this is where we see very strongly in um, the letters, they start Therese, between Therese and her sisters, this idea of Therese being this sort of the little the little ball. Mm-hmm. It comes out a lot. Can you say a little bit about uh, about that kind of aspect of her spirituality? Oh yeah, just yeah, the sense of of what being the child Jesus's toy, you know, yeah. just to kind of like do whatever he wants with, and not to have any demands on what he should be doing or how things should go, you know. But that even if he wants this, she says like, uh, you know, pierce it and tear it open, <laughs> you know, like that's how she felt. That's okay, you know, he's he can do what he wants, and. Um, yeah, so that real abandonment, you know, to to divine providence, you can see, you know, in the in that, you know, in this, and and again, as you mentioned, like helping form her spirituality, you know, because it was only in this pilgrimage too, and that, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but it was only in the pilgrimage that she met all these priests for the first time, mm-hmm. and and by being around them all the time, she saw that these are very, you know, fragile human beings who who need prayer, you know, and and. Uh, there were certain instances where I think one, um, she really liked the hot chocolate drink at the inn. And I guess some, this one priest would always like drink it all ahead of time. So this, <laughs> this priest wasn't the model of mortification maybe that she thought a priest would be. And uh, these little things, you know, helped her see, you know, her part of her call to pray for priests, you know, in Carmel. So just, yeah, just kind of that getting worked into in this whole, in this whole journey through Rome. Right. And to sh- also to show a little bit uh, of maybe an insight into uh, her similarity with her namesake, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, um, her determination in all of this. Uh, I think this would have been a lesson for her in determination in the sense that she, at this point, you know, she has gotten as high as she can, um, you know, to the, to the the highest court in the land, so to speak, um, in terms of what she can do, what she can accomplish. And I think there would have been a sense of peace for her. I, you know, I think she even speaks about this. Um, that she had done all that she could mm-hmm. and and yeah. to as a as an example of what determination in in the spiritual life looks like if, if discerning that something's god's will um to be determined to see it to its end yeah. as much as we can yeah. Yeah. yeah and going back to that image of her being the jesus's little ball his plaything is that doesn't it, it's a beautiful sense of abandonment and docility but it doesn't mean uh, for Therese that we don't do anything yeah. because she still she went all the way to the Pope so like <laughs> yeah. you said, she did everything that she could yeah. and yet then you just hand it over mm-hmm. and just trust and say you know if it's your will God then it'll happen I've done all that I can yeah. now it's in your hands yes. and it's just like such a beautiful aspect of her spirituality to be able to hand that over mm-hmm. in that way yeah. and that's a real peace you know there's an unshakable peace that she would talk about that she had deep yeah. down you know as a fruit of that and she didn't give up hope. She still is convinced that she's going to enter at yeah. Christmas. This is November. Yeah. And she's still <laughs> convinced that she's going to enter the Carmel at Christmas. And um, 
so we see even on the rest of her pilgrimage, things kind of change even a little bit more. Her father talks with the vicar general. She has this moment where she, uh, she's, she's left somewhere where there's only uh, one carriage left, and it's the vicar general's carriage. And so it's this great, you know, you can just imagine her climbing up, and she's sitting with him in this carriage and, and speaking a little bit with him. Um, but so she, she begins kind of, she goes through these ups and downs of having hope that this is still going to happen. It's still God's will. Um, and yeah, that continues through the rest of this pilgrimage. Yeah. And then she, so she gets home eventually. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ecclesiastical superior of the Carmel Fla del Tourette, he's still, you know, he's, he's as, you know, as, as, you know, obstinate as he's always been in this regard. Uh, but she must have had some effect on uh, on the vicar general and the bishop because ultimately the bishop um, gives her permission uh, and and says, "Okay, uh, you can enter. You can enter. Uh, you can enter the Carmel of of Lisieux. Yeah, and that all comes particularly through a letter. She writes this letter to the bishop, and eventually he responds. But it says when she wrote the letter, I think it was ten days before Christmas, she was still thinking yeah. to enter at Christmas, yeah. and it says. Every day after Mass, she would go with her father, the father to the post office and just see that there wasn't this letter that she was expecting. Yeah. And so this is another great lesson in detachment. Just every day she's going and she's still holding out hope that it's going to be, but then Christmas comes and goes yeah. and she still hasn't heard yet. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't mean too that she just was like willful, like she just decided Christmas. Like she probably had, you know, some real sense, even by God, you know, that this, this would happen. And so she was holding on to it, but that it's, it shows too that freedom of being able to revise in a sense, your expectations of what God is doing based on the reality, you know, and, and not giving up hope, but saying, okay, maybe it's not precisely at Christmas, but then what a week after Christmas, the letter does come, you know? So it just, for whatever reason, she maybe just needed to let go of even what she thought God mm-hmm. was telling her or wanted, you know, in that moment. And I think I think you know a lot of times we we have a tendency. Um, a lot of people have a tendency. I know I do, of like wanting to to see you know providence sort of realized. Like, well, this will be the one year anniversary <laughs> yes. of of all of these things. I do that all the time. I, my, I got my uh, I was made an acolyte on on the feast of Christ the King, which is my feast day, and you know I want all of these things to sort of work out in this sort of way. My second novitiate started on John of the Cross and on the or on exaltation and on John of the Cross. Yeah. It's like all these auspicious dates that you want to be perfect, right? Um, so I, I share that with Therese that that sentiment, but that idea that okay, you know God God works. Uh, beyond just just those providential sort of uh, nice nice uh, yeah. I, I don't want to say coincidence coincidences but those sort of how things line up in yeah. ways that are that are you know cute and nice mm-hmm. right so. <laughs> <laughs> so when does Therese get, get permission then to enter what, what's well it's New Year's Day so it's a week after Christmas the octave yeah. um, but she doesn't enter right away <laughs> right well so the, there's obviously you know you can't tell like get the letter and enter tomorrow. So she, there's a date set, but then, um, we know that, we know that Therese's oldest sister Marie had was of all of her family members was probably the most sort of hesitant, um, of Therese to enter. And, and, but it's Pauline actually, who, who works to delay, uh, Therese's entry. She's worried that, um, the Lenten penances will be too much for, for Therese, which I'm sure would have really annoyed Therese when she found that out. Um, 
and it really annoyed Louis. Louis was really taken <laughs> aback. <laughs> he goes, "This is the." I mentioned this last week, but he goes into the into the speak room and and <coughs> basically accuses uh, accuses uh, uh, Pauline, Sister Agnes, of being of being sort of this, uh, you know, uh, sort of letting down what her word was in in the yeah. sense of you know you promise and then you take it back, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think for Therese, it's. Uh, you know, at this point, she's she's she knows that she's going to she's going to enter, and and so, um, you know, ultimately she does uh, at the end of what is it? Um, April ninth. April, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. But it it still is. It's funny to me reading this because she finds out she has to wait another three months, and you'd think it's an eternity. She's yeah. just like, <laughs> it, it's so hard for her, but. Um, we can see how providential it was and how that time, and she was able to see looking back and she, when she writes about it in the story of a soul of how providential it was and how, um, God was really using those three months to prepare her for mm-hmm. her entrance into karma. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, even the whole thing, it might've been very wise, you know, cause remember Therese was so sensitive to the cold and that ended up becoming like the hardest thing for her, you know, later on in Carmel. And, um, and so it, you know, to enter right away and just be subjected to that, you know, it's, it could have been, I mean, I'm sure she would have persevered, but just again, like God's providence, you know, that might, might've been the, the right moment. Um, and so many things happened in those three months, you know, that, that she kind of recognized too. She had the wisdom to say, no, I'm going to use this time well and, and do as best I can. And so she didn't like, you know, pretend to be a nun for those three months. Um, but she did, you mentioned earlier about, um, just, doing all those little things, you know, I don't know if it'd be worth maybe quoting even because, uh, mortifying the will, you know, not letting any word pass like a sharp word or, or, um, not giving into her wants every time or those kind of things that for a, you know, 14, 15 year old, you know, would be quite challenging, but saying, no, I'm going to use this time well and, and try to interiorly kind of bring my will under subjection. And so then therefore when I enter karma, it'll be much more natural. Yeah. yeah. So then we get uh, the dates coming right. April 9th is uh, 1888 is when she entered. Um, and she writes in the story of a soul about um, the the night before she entered and having dinner with the whole family. And just how, even though she's looked forward to this day so much, everyone's kind of filled with tears, you know, and saying, saying goodbye to her. Um, but yet she's, yeah, she she's even... Um, she just experiences this great peace when the day finally comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, my favorite. Therese didn't know about this. This this comes from a later account, uh, probably from Pauline. But uh, the the superior, the the priest superior of the Carmel, he kind of throws a, a biting sort of remark when he he says, "Well, I hope she doesn't disappoint you. <laughs> you got what you want." Yeah. You <laughs> so the this this sort of sarcastic. Uh, little remark that um, I'm sure annoyed annoyed uh, uh, Pauline to a great degree. I mean, she remembers it pretty. I, I think it's it's Pauline that remembers this, um, but it doesn't really phase Therese at all. We don't know if that she if she overheard this remark, but um, yeah, even to the end. I mean, well, even to the point of Therese's entry into Carmel, uh, there was still sort of like this hesitation, right? Yeah. It's like okay, here we go again, uh, another. You know, young girl who's who's not ready, so to speak. But um, but you know, her first months in Carmel are, are filled with great peace and mm-hmm. 
and joy and, and being able to to live everything that she'd she'd already been been living uh, outside of the the cloister exactly and I think that's that's one of the key and a good thing for anyone who's discerning you know is that Therese said when I entered I mean it was not all roses because you know right away too they were going to make sure she's not just going to be this the spoiled girl in the convent or something and so the spirit was kind of hard on her and she said but nothing surprised me like I there was nothing that I that I met in Carmel that I like that shocked me or made me think anything different than when I entered and I think that's the key is just being realistic, you know, that like when we're discerning a vocation um, to not have a sense that everything's going to be different or or finally I'll just whatever, get this or be this way. It's like just to be very realistic about what you're entering, but still desiring that with all your heart, you know. And the the, the last thing I would just say, too, with that um, is when I was <laughs> discerning and, and going through the application process and there were some challenges that came up and, and a, a Carmelite nun told me. Um, if you don't have difficulties in your application process, um, you should probably doubt your vocation. to <laughs> So, so I think, you know, and just for people to see that too, that she's going to be a real patron, you know, for that is difficulties. And we see also in Therese, this sense of, um, acknowledging God's providence and God's will, even in the setbacks, mm-hmm. um, seeing, even if it's not in discernment, but just in the, the daily things in our lives, how the struggles, the things that we see as setbacks are really God's uh, way of teaching us, God's way of helping us, preparing us for what is to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helps when we're in those moments to kind of recognize that, no, this is happening for a reason. There's a, um, God's using this to sanctify me. Mm-hmm. So with that, we'll uh, come back next week and continue our, our journey with, with St. Therese and uh, her life and her, her lessons and uh, the beginning of, of her discovery, um, in a sense, of, of the little way uh, and what that meant for her and how she spread that uh, to the other nuns she lived with and ultimately uh, to the whole world, um, her little way that was so influential in her becoming a saint and also uh, a doctor of the church, the youngest doctor of the church. So with that, we uh, wish you a blessed uh, Lent this week. Um, Stay uh, determined in that. uh, (laughs) Ask for uh, graces through the intercession of St. Therese. God bless you. God bless. Bye. Hey everyone, Brother Pier Giorgio here. Thanks for checking out this episode of CarmelCast. If you want to hear more of us, don't forget to click subscribe. Also, be sure to click like if you enjoyed this episode. Want more information on Carmelite spirituality and the Discalced Carmelite Saints? Then you'll want to check out our website, www.icspublications.org. There's a link in the description of this episode. From here, you can see all our current promotions and access our complete catalog for the writings of St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and St. Edith Stein. If you want to stay up to date on all our promotions and new titles, then be sure to add your email to our email list. There's no better way to stay up to date on the latest Carmelite publications. Thanks for joining us, and may God bless you.